1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cutillo the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Dr. Donald Stoker. I should say Professor Donald Stoker. Professor Stoker is Professor Emeritus at the Naval War College, where he taught for 18 years. He is currently a Fulbright visiting professor of international relations at the Diplomatic Academy in Vienna. And today we are speaking about his new book, Why America Loses Wars, Limited War, and the and U.S. Strategy from Korea to the Present. Welcome, Dr. Stoker.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate
0: it. Professor Stoker, what is the thesis of your book?
1: Uh, the, the thesis is essentially that uh, the, the problem, why we have these what some people are calling forever wars is because American leaders, military and political leaders, and people like myself, sometimes as well that write about it. We really don't know how to think about war anymore. We don't approach it in a very clear manner. Uh, we're fuzzy about what we want. We're fuzzy about what we want and what it, what that even needs. We don't understand uh, what the end state should look like. And that, causes a roll-on effect of various problems because if you don't understand what you want to achieve then what are you fighting the war for you know it's it's what i call it sometimes in the book is the why of war and i'm certainly not the first person to have ever said that because we've forgotten that pivotal i think that pivotal element of it because if you don't understand the why of it then what are you doing here why are you committing all these men and women and, and money and resources and you know, breaking things and killing people. For, what, what is the point of it? If you don't understand that, that's a bad place to start.
0: Can you define for the audience uh, the
1: term limited war? and That is one of the, the biggest issues to start with, and obviously the most important one. Um, but the first fight that I have to have in the book is with uh, the way that we define it. And, and this is also part of the problem. Um, most of the literature when it talks about war, it defines war by the means being used, uh, and it doesn't define it by the political objective being sought. And this creates an instant problem because uh, it, you don't have a, a foundation for your argument if you don't have a good definition. You don't have a foundation for your analysis if you don't have a good uh, a good definition. So back to then, what does limited war mean? Well. Uh, if you're going to look at wars, the best place to start uh, for your analysis is to look at the objective being sought. And I I take uh, my definition of limited war from the combination of of Clausewitz and also Sir Sir Julian Corbett, the the British theorist, who he kind of gives us the, the modern term limited war. Wars are fought, Clausewitz tells us, and Corbett as well, for two primary purposes. One, for regime change, and two, for something less than this. Uh, and these wars fought for something less than this are limited wars. Now, the problem with the term, the, the way we use the term, when we use the word limited, we assume instantly that this means it would be small. Uh, that's not certainly not the case. Just because the objective is, the political objective is something less than regime change, that doesn't mean that this objective isn't extremely valuable. Uh, you, you can be fighting a defensive war. Uh, and if you don't win this war for you, it's a limited aim to achieve this. But it could be an existential crisis, you know, for losing it. Uh, if you lose it, for example, the Finns in 1940 uh, against this in 1939-1940 in fighting the Soviet Union, they're fighting for a limited political aim uh, to preserve their state. But if they don't uh, fight hard, which they do fight hard, and they're able to preserve this, the cost can be quite high. So I think that's part of the the basic problem. Is this we, we don't define well what we want, and because we don't don't define well what we're talking about, this then spills over and, and through the literature to a, a lot of confusion uh, and, and creates a lot of uh, a lot of bad ideas. I think. Correct me if
0: I'm wrong. In the case of the Finns, 1939-1940, is the gist of thinking that the Finns were fighting a limited war or or not? Because my understanding from the literature is that. In late November 1939, the uh, Soviets decided that since the Finns were recalcitrant in their negotiations, they decided that uh, they would, in fact, impose a, um, in essence, a Soviet-style regime. They signed an agreement with uh, the head of the Finnish Communist Party, and that's why they commenced the the military operation. Military operations, from the Russian perspective, was just to overthrow the existing. Finn regime and and impose a a Soviet one. So from the Finnish perspective, once the war commenced at that point, it was a, I suppose you can say, existential conflict. So for them, it was an unlimited war. It just so happens for extraneous reasons, particularly the likelihood of uh, Anglo-French military intervention, that the Soviets were were forced to uh, negotiate something which was much more acceptable to the Finns, even though the Finns subsequently, when the Germans invaded the Russia in June 1941, uh, decided to participate
1: in the hopes of uh, getting back uh, what they lost. So that you can't confuse the Finnish aim, the Finnish political aim, with the Russian political aim. And here is again, this this illustrates part of the problem with the way we, the way the literature writes about, the way the literature writes about war in general. Uh, the the Russian aim is an unlimited political aim; they seek regime change. Uh, uh, to impose a new regime on the Finns. The Finns don't seek regime change. They seek to preserve what they have. You know, so this is part of the problem with even using the term uh, limited war, and there are a few writers who tackle this, is that you know, different people have different aims, uh, and you have to start your analysis from the aims. You know, your aim might be limited. Theirs might be unlimited. In that case, what happens is when you're doing your analysis, you're saying, okay, we want, uh, well, Vietnam, well, in Vietnam, all the different players have different aims. Uh, uh, the uh, the aim for the United States, you know, is a limited one, which is often why it's called a limited war. We wish to just preserve South Vietnam, uh, but the aim for the North Vietnamese is is quite different from that. Their 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 aim against us is a limited one, but their aim against South Vietnam is an unlimited one. Uh, they wish to overthrow that regime. So this is this is part of the confusion with it. Is you have to you have to you have to split. Uh, uh, split things where they are. You have to look at the different players in it and then look at the aims. Then look at the means that are involved in it. And the problem is that we look at the means that are being committed to this and say committed to a particular conflict and we judge the conflict, you know, based upon that. And we define the conflict or try to define the conflict based upon that. The problem with that is looking at the level of means, it's so subjective. It brings in the term total war uh, comes into this. Well, when does a war become total? Well, you really can't describe that. There's no, formula, no definition that you can give for that. So the primary argument I make is, look, we have to start with this object, the object that you want, the object that you're seeking. And you have to understand that, and you have to understand what – you have to understand also that the objects being sought have a certain value. Again, this is what Plausius teaches us. And this then spills over into how the war is going to be fought, what it's going to cost, it's going to contribute to that. And it's going to contribute to the difficulty of it as well. The Finn's object was a limited one, but it was an extremely valuable one for them, state survival. So they were willing to pay uh, as much as they had to pay for as long as they could, and they were willing to fight as hard as they could, and and it, it paid off for them. But if for a lesser object of a lesser value, maybe they wouldn't uh, have been willing to fight as hard. So that's the the first place you have to start is with that, but you have to understand the other people. The other states involved, what their objects are as well, including your allies.
0: Yes. Um, uh, I suppose another aspect of the, the question is uh, when there's a can be a sequence in which a limited war for one of both parties becomes an unlimited war. Um, that occurs in uh, cases in history, I suppose, in particular, uh, Napoleon's invasion of Russia for him. Uh, the war was initially a limited one, for a specific uh, goals. It just so happens that because of the nature of the terrain and his opponent, it became, in essence, an unlimited one. Well,
1: the, the best example for our purposes is Korea of that, where um, you know, for the U.S. for the U.S. purposes, where you have when you, we we start the Korean War, Korean War is always called the often called the first American limited war, which it isn't by any means, but. Uh, You often see it branded that way. Uh, Our objective initially, there is a limited one where we just seek to preserve South Korean regime. But uh, the Truman administration, you know, very quickly into the war uh, decides that hmm, here's an opportunity. Uh, We can change our objective uh, and decide to uh, remove the North Korean regime as well. And so they essentially, they change, they do change the political objective and decide to conquer North Korea. You'll see in the literature sometimes that this is blamed on MacArthur, that he just, MacArthur's mad march north. as one author, one author puts it. But this is a political decision made by the Truman administration, you know, even before Incheon. Uh, MacArthur certainly doesn't disagree with it and is eager to do it, but uh, it's very much a political decision. But then the, the war, when you change the political objective, you change the nature of the war because that changes the value of the object for everybody around you. you know, when you think about you know Korea, um, you can make a good argument that the Truman administration had won the war uh, right up to the point when they crossed the 38th parallel. At that point, you've got another war on your hands, a different war, because you've decided to eliminate uh, um, another regime, uh, and you've decided to eliminate uh, a, a Soviet and Chinese client state uh, or allied state. Uh, or allies not quite the, quite the right word, but certainly associated. You know, so and this then raises uh, the stakes for them. And so this of course as we know provokes the Chinese intervention you know as well and then and increased Soviet support you know, as well from it. You know, so, but you're right it, it, it though the objective can change in the course of the war. And in Korea then after the Chinese intervention our political objective after much hemming and hawing and fuzziness on the part of the Truman administration eventually turns back to being a limited one again. So, which is part of the reality of it. That's why it's it's just not so simple just to brand something uh, a limited war because because the the nature of wars change.
0: Uh, What do you attribute the intellectual confusion of uh, President Obama, or ex-President
1: Obama, concerning the conflict with ISIS? That's a tough one. It's hard because uh, we don't really know a lot of the things. But, you know, certainly... uh, he approached it as uh, so many of the other presidents have, and in some ways, as Truman, not having a very clear objective initially, not committing the means uh, necessary to it and be involved in the war, uh, and he obviously didn't, you know, want uh, to do it. You know, he, you know, part of the way he runs uh, when he runs for election was to to end the wars in Iraq and you know, Afghanistan. Uh, and then he ends up fighting the third Iraq war, which is, you know, you can have uh, good intentions, but uh, sometimes what you do uh, will uh, will come back to bite you because you know, he's criticized, you know, Emma Sky and others criticized the, the end of the second Iraq war, as I term it, uh, the way that the Obama administration ended that, that this sets up part of the problems. And that's certainly only a piece of the puzzle. Uh, but, but the bigger issue, you know, knowing what you want there, when he lays out the objective initially for the war against ISIS degrade, you know, and destroy, I think is how he puts it. Well, which one is it? You know, you need it needs to be something really clear for this. And then when you start committing troops, uh, you really should be serious and have the means to actually do this. We um, you make an argument that this is not unusual for the American it, this is all through American history where the United States often wants to, to, to fight a war on the cheap and, and often is very reluctant to commit the the forced involved until something really bad happens and then we're forced to
0: correct me if I'm wrong um but um, I got the impression that the book at times seems to confuse uh military combat per se and or um peripher what what I would call peripheral military interventions with war so for example in the nineteenth 20th century the British and the Americans just just taking them as, as examples, uh, were involved in many peripheral conflicts. I'm thinking of, for example, the revolt in Palestine, 1936-1939, the Iraq Rebellion of 1920, the emergency in Malaysia in 1950s, a similar emergency in Kenya the 1950s as well, uh, the uh, intervention in uh, Northern Ireland from nineteen sixty nine onwards. uh while military conflict conflict was uh, involved, there were lives being lost on both sides, admittedly the British much less than their opponents, most um scholars would not define these conflicts as war, even though the and um even though they were very limited or they were limited in um in scale,
2: well, actually, I I think I would disagree that um, most scholars don't define them as, or most scholars do uh, define them as wars. Uh, Malaya and some of the other examples; these are certainly wars. I think part of the problem uh, we sometimes use these uh, call things conflict, but we you know which is certainly certainly they are conflicts, but um, these are certainly wars. This is where uh, military force is being used for a political purpose, for political violence. Uh, violence for a political purpose, which is sometimes terrorism, but certainly uh, these are certainly uh, very clearly uh, wars. Uh, even though, even though, it,
0: I, I mean, I read some of the papers in Whitehall, and no one in the late '30s described themselves as being in, in war in in Palestine in that period of time, or for that matter.
2: You know, I think it, if you ask the people it, there, that I think they would certainly consider it a war. Uh, just because the policymakers don't say that, which I think is part of the problem, because the policymakers are just this fear of admitting uh, admitting it. If you admit you're in a war, well, then maybe we have to do something differently. Yes, but to some extent,
0: um, does that need to be on um, acknowledgement on both sides? At least, um, to some extent. I mean, after all, the Americans in, in both the Korean War and the Vietnam War uh, war in inverted inverted commas, as it were. They, they did admit that they, were, they called them war, military conflicts, whereas I don't think there was anyone in Whitehall who regarded the intervention in Northern Ireland from sixty nine onward, even though it involved regular land forces as the military conflict as such.
2: I mean, you could maybe make a case for Ireland not being a war, uh, the, the Irish, but the other ones certainly are. And, and in Korea, uh, Truman himself even shied away from calling it a war. Uh, he called it officially a police action and what's interesting is' in, even in his memoirs he won't call it a war he, he calls it a conflict or the action or the korea problem or something like that but but I think that's part of uh part of the part of the problem we have today is just our our refusal by sometimes of the policymakers to just admit and say yes this is a war and I <laughs> plain and simple uh, if you don't know you're in a war you're certainly not wanting to not willing to win it. Uh, maybe this is why some of our wars go on so long. You know, we should just face it clearly in the eye what we're actually facing, calling what it call it what it is, and then and then go on from there. Deceiving ourselves doesn't do much good. From your perspective, what
0: was the problem with uh, President Bush the Younger's uh, quote global war on terror concept, unquote?
2: My criticism I think is the same as a lot of others. It's kind of a nebulous, uh, nebulous thing. What are we uh, declaring war on? Uh, as the <laughs> comedian Terry T- Gilliam called an abstract noun, um, it, it's it's much more useful to have a very clear focus as to what we want. Uh, certainly, you know, the Bush administration knew what it wanted uh, to a certain point in Afghanistan, but having this kind of nebulous term and then having this having something where you don't really have Any vision, uh, really clearly spelled out vision of an end state, no, is uh, is a problem, I think. And uh, how do you bring it to an end uh, if you don't really know what the end looks like?
0: And uh, for that matter, can you? How do you define victory? That's a question that you go
2: into uh, quite a bit in the book. Victory. uh, I stick primarily with Clausewitz's definition. There are certainly others, but. Uh, achievement of a political objective, you know that you want, and then having a peace that you've secured, you know along with it, you know, because most people, most nations, when they go to wars, they want a better peace out of it. You know they don't expect the war to go on forever, and then to then to have nothing uh, from it. Uh, so uh, that's what what I would say. You know, victory, not just victory on the battlefield, which is certainly, uh, but actually uh, achieving something for the state. You are going to pay, you know, I know too many friends who have spent too many time, so much time overseas that, um, you know, that there needs to be an end to this. You need to see what's going on to get the objective and then to finish the job rather than have it drag on.
0: Why is the term
2: total war problematical in your opinion? Okay, uh, for, for a couple of reasons. One, because it's, it's not really firmly defined. Uh, and it's really difficult to arrive at a definition. It's a mean based definition. Uh, and because it's a means-based definition, it's, it's very, very subjective. Uh, how do you define when a war becomes total? Uh, for, uh, it, you, you really can't it, it, because this, you really need something more firm uh, to ground it on. People then imply that a total war is necessarily a big war. Well, okay, but then define big. Yeah we yes we understand what big means but total war doesn't give us a basis for analysis the term doesn't
0: you seem to argue that limited wars are a western democratic concept does not that overlook the many limited wars fought in the last 60 some years by non-western non-democratic powers in particular one can think of the sino-japanese sino-vietnamese war of 1979 the Russian military intervention in Afghanistan, the Sino-Indian War of 1962, Egypt's military intervention in North Yemen in the mid-1960s, among others.
2: I don't argue at all that uh, it's a Western phenomenon. I use many, many examples. One of the primary examples of, that, is, that is used as a case study for uh, looking at wars of limited aims, the russo Japanese war, uh, 1904, 1905. It's arguably one of the best cases to study because the Japanese do one of the rare things, and that's actually uh, prepare uh, for for ending the war and actually start planning to end how they're going to end the war before they even start it, which is very, very rarely done, uh, and it's a very hard to find examples for it. Uh, and much of the limited war literature uh, concerns certainly the relations between India. And Pakistan and their various wars, and I use you know a number of examples uh, for that. Uh, certainly, the wars in Southeast Asia, the wars in Korea. So it, it's hardly uh, a, a Western uh, phenomenon. Uh, some of our opponents actually seem uh, much better at having very clear objectives and understanding, you know, what they want uh, from it. What exactly is nested war? Uh, a nested war is a, a term that people use. Often, when they uh, talk about the Cold War, uh, which you know I certainly wouldn't classify as a war, but you know that's accepted term, you have this struggle going on uh, between uh, different powers, and then you would have a- another war being fought within it. Uh, you can make an argument that uh, some of the things that happened in the Second World War. Perhaps back to our Finnish story, maybe make an argument that in some respects that's a nested war, but it might be a little little bit of a stretch for that. But usually the example given is the Korean War and the Vietnam War, how you have these uh, – and and the Afghan Afghan wars for the Soviet Union as well, where you have this struggle, uh, these wars that are going on uh, that are fought by at least one of major power that is involved in a contest of some type with – uh, the other powers, you why know, the by the Cold War is so often used as the example. Can you
0: outline for the audience the key cons- quote key constraints unquote in military conflict?
2: Uh, see if I can remember <laughs> remember them all off the top of my head. Uh, the biggest constraint uh, is the is obviously the political objective, you know, being sought of the other side because this is going to affect uh, what you are what you are able to do. Uh, because that has a certain value. They want it. They might want the same, you, same thing you want. They might want something different. Uh, and, and that is what you have to have to figure out. Uh, uh, because that's going to affect how hard and how tough uh, they're going to fight you. Now, there are, of course, uh, a, a lot of others. Uh, one of the most common and one of the most important, of course, is, is the means. Uh, how much means are you willing uh, to, uh, to commit to this? How much means do you have? Uh, how much cost is, it, is going to be you know, involved in this? Because obviously you can't commit usually everything you have. You know? And, and the, the political objective acts on this uh, in, a, in a lot of ways more fiercely uh, with a war for a limited aim because the limited aim sometimes is just simply not as valuable. Uh, as, as something else might be, or the, the value is relatively small in comparison you know, to something, something else. For example, you know, we're fighting the Korean War, the means the Truman administration is willing to commit to it are uh, constrained because they have commitments in Europe that they consider in some ways more important. You know, so they're not willing to put the means that the commanders want, and arguably they're not willing to put the means in that would be necessary at certain points, to actually achieve their political aim because they've got commitments to NATO you know, and other places. Uh, time you know, is certainly you know, critical. Uh, when, when a war starts, uh, you've only got so much time, uh, and both sides are only, or the various sides, are only willing to fight the war for so much time. How do you measure that? You really can't measure it. But each side acts in order to slow down their own clock and to speed up the others. Another do acting to where you control your situation, or to where you 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 win time for yourself. You know, military victory does this sometimes. You know, political actions can do this as well. You know, but the other side's try to speed up your clock while you uh, while you speed up there. So, and how long is are your people willing to fight for this objective? You know, which is a, a big deal. This is uh, the the classic example on the American side is given to Vietnam, where the uh, American public opinion just eventually decides. you know this is the cost we're having to pay just isn't worth it. Uh, the international political environment. What are other states saying? Are they going to get involved? How are they going to affect uh, what is going on in the war that you're fighting? The geography, you know, is certainly uh, a constraint. You know, it. Well, sometimes geography will, will dictate what you have to do. You can't get over the fact that. Uh, Korea is a mountainous peninsula this is just something you have to address uh, and then there might be other things as well that come up that constrain you know what you're doing uh, you just don't know the situation each war is so different each war is is so unique uh, that you, it's very difficult to sit down and say okay in every situation this is the problem that you will have this is the constraint you know that you will have and that that's the most important ones I think
0: in chapter 5 you discussed at length the military escalation policy of the Johnson administration in the Vietnam war specifically operation rolling thunder what do you conclude about this uh, failed strategy
2: well it's a it's a it's a case study that a lot of people are example that a lot of people look at with, with good reason uh because it what's interesting the it, Leaders in the administration, a lot of them, they do not even think that this will deliver their objective when they do it, but they still do it anyway. You know, which is an interesting thing to think they to see. They think they have to do something, and so this seems uh, like in Johnson's idea, you know the, the best uh, uh, the best thing to do. It's also a great example of how bad theory uh, produces uh, produces problems. Ah uh, because it it's some of the the theories on limited war and signaling and graduated pressure, you know, from Schelling and some of the other uh, civilian intellectuals who are advising uh, the Joss administration. These ideas feed into the execution or influence directly the execution, you know of, of this campaign. but they're ideas that aren't necessarily related. Uh, uh, to warfare, uh, one of the problems with a lot of the limited war literature in the fifties and the sixties, they talk about limited war and various ideas on limited war, but don't really talk about you a war. They go into economic issues or so on, which you know is fine, but it's it's not necessarily what the, the point of it is. So the result of this is you have these uh, these these flawed ideas uh, that don't really take into account the nature of the war. They don't really take into account the nature of the opponent. Combined with an underestimation of the opponent, combined with a, a lack of understanding of just what air power is capable of doing, uh, and the assumption is, with air power, you can then push the opponent uh, to uh, to the negotiating table and make them quit doing you know the things that they're doing, and it's none of it obviously works. I mean, it was all complete misreading of the opponent. The theory doesn't work because gradually applying pressure to somebody like the North Vietnamese, uh, they just say, okay, that's not so bad. Uh, we'll just wait till the next time. Then they could not be influenced just uh, just by the use of air power, in, particularly in this way.
0: Uh, would you attribute the same variables as being present in the failure of General Westmoreland's attrition strategy in the Vietnam War?
2: Some of them are, are, are there. Certainly the underestimation uh, of the opponent you know, is, uh, is certainly there. Uh, the, we, we've made this mistake a number of times in, in our wars, underestimating how tough uh, the other side uh, can be, and that's a, a big factor in, uh, in, uh, in, the, uh, in the Vietnam War. Also, the assumption that, you know, with Westworld's attrition strategy, the assumption is that you can kill enough of the enemy to push them to the crossover point. That's something that you don't control. Uh, in this because you don't control uh, the issue of sanctuary where the North Vietnamese you know they can choose not to allow you to inflict casualties on them because you cannot go into certain areas where where they can operate. So it also doesn't this idea of pushing them to a crossover point where they can't replace their losses also doesn't take into the into account the effects of Chinese support where uh, depending on you know what at what point, uh, during the Chinese support for North Vietnam, at, at one point they have 180,000 troops uh, supporting the North Vietnamese uh, in North Vietnam or in, in Laos even sometimes. And so this certainly makes it then even more difficult to uh, to, affect, uh, uh, to affect the Vietnamese and actually push them to a point where they can't replace, replace their losses. So there are a lot of uh, uh, built-in you know, assumptions uh, with this. If we do this, this will happen. Well, what if it doesn't happen? You know, our doing this might not give us the result that we want. Uh, We don't control the factors around that. You don't control what the enemy is doing in this situation, or you don't control the other factors that give the enemy certain advantages, which is not very good.
0: Can you tell the audience why, as you put it, quote, victory is a political act,
2: unquote? Uh, it's just it, it is in that sense because this gives you your political objective. This is how you get what you want. You know, the, ideally, America's political leaders have taken America to war because it's in the national interest to do so. Uh, chi- achieving uh, achieving victory is achieving the political objective it is is in it's supposed to be in the uh, in the advantage of national interest. It's supposed to make the situation better for the United States and give the United States a better peace afterward. If you're not winning. How do you get the better piece? You know, the our, our opponents that we're we've had to deal with, they don't look at the winning. I mean, excuse me, they don't they don't shy away from trying to win. They're not afraid to win. They realize that uh, winning matters here.
0: Uh, why do you say that? "Quote in war,
2: not winning is the same as losing." Unquote. Uh, it's a zero sum game. You know with it. Uh, uh, again, this back to the thing I just said. I mean, if uh, you're trying to get what you want preserve what you have or get what you want or get what you think you have to have for your own security uh if you don't get it then how is this not defeat and so the other side again the you look at Putin and the Ukraine he understands what winning means you know getting what he wants in the Crimea uh we need to understand not that we should be thinking like Putin certainly. Uh, but we need to understand how our opponents are, are acting, and and also when you you think about you know these wars we we've, we we've, we've, we're fighting or have been fighting, uh, we're asking uh, you look at the whole history of of, of sending people to war, you know, asking people to go to war, asking men and women to go fight and not expect them to win. This is a little much to ask.
0: On page two hundred two, you state that the U.S. should have followed General Westmoreland's recommendations. Post the Tet Offensive in March 1968 to add uh, additional troops and military operations to take advantage of the weakened state of the Viet Cong and or North Vietnamese was not really the issue that Westmoreland, by that point, post Tet, had little or no credibility with the civilian American leadership due to his uh, light at the end of the
2: tunnel prognosis of late 1967. Well, ideally... is is what I argue that's what the the U.S. should have been able to do or should have done because you you have the opportunity now. You've finally broken uh, the insurgency. But politically, this is not possible, and partially for the reasons you just mentioned because Westmoreland doesn't have any credibility, but also uh, the political leadership doesn't have any willingness to do this from either party at this point. And certainly with the the new administration that comes in, they're not willing uh, to do this as well. Ideally, in a perfect world, that would be the reaction, but the reality of, of, of wars is that this is a political act, and you have public opinion, particularly in democracy, public opinion is going to, what you think you can, what politicians think they can get away with, or what they can do in the shape of public opinion is going to dictate, you know, what they do. Uh, here's where we mentioned the issue of time earlier. You only have so much time, uh, and at this point... You know the argument, by not my argu- argument, not just mine, but by many people, the U.S. just simply run out of time you know, politically, and on um, any era of public opinion as well.
0: Was not the, or it could not be said the upshot, the real upshot of the Vietnam War, um, as well as for that, war for that matter, the Russo-Japanese War, was that the more cohesive and disciplined society, Japanese and North Vietnamese, rather than American
2: and Russian. Won the conflict? I I don't know. I don't think that you could put it that way. I don't know that that matters as much, you know. With this, I mean, if you to, uh, you know, you could argue that the Nazi regime was much more disciplined, but that certainly doesn't give them victory. You know? So I don't think that's necessarily uh, uh, a basis for making the argument that's always going to win. The Americans, Americans in the Revolution certainly weren't most disciplined. <laughs>
0: True. Uh, what do you mean concretely when you state on page two twenty six quote Western elites and leaders lack the intellectual foundation to discuss war in a rational and logical manner, and they generally do not study war, even history, political, or even history, political decision making. Their staff are considered the least informed. Unquote.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, people don't study history anymore. Uh, and I, I think that that's critical, you know, for trying to understand war. And having read enormous amounts of the literature and what's being used to teach people to, to form these ideas, uh, it, it's just not logical a, a, a lot of the times. You know, we're back to, to arguing about definitions and things like that, but these things these things matter. And the teaching of, of, a th- of the theory, I mean, I, I'm a great proponent in, in teaching theory, you know, having you know, written a biography of Clausewitz and studied a lot of military theory. Uh, but I think a lot of the more modern theory that's being taught is not grounded enough in uh, certainly in the in the in the classical tradition of military theory and military thought. And I think it's kind of weak, you know, which will certainly come through in the uh, arguably that's obviously that's one of the points of the book will come through pretty clearly. Uh, Isn't one of the problems
0: with uh, General Van Fleet's recommendations um, in 1951 in the Korean War to uh, launch a military offensive north of uh, uh, the uh, then-American Chinese lines in the middle of the peninsula, the fact that uh, by going further north, you assist the Chinese by reducing their supply lines and logistical lines while at the same time, conversely, you increase your own difficulty, or if you want to use the expression, friction, by virtue of the fact that your own supply lines are much further extended, and of course, the um, battlefield becomes elongated as you approach the Chinese Russo
2: border. Well, they were planning on driving all the way you know, to the border. Uh, pushing them back certainly would have uh, shortened the Chinese supply line some, but no, not significantly, and, and certainly we would certainly make it continuously difficult for them to, uh, to keep their supplies up. It would certainly shorten it some. Uh, and ours, we one wonderful thing about the engineering capability of American forces traditionally is that logistics are usually something that are resolved fairly quickly. Uh, but that the bigger issue is, you know, by doing that, as Van Fleet argued, do you win the war? Do you end the war? Do you force the enemy to the table uh, and and bring them uh, bring them to actually make a deal, uh, which is what what essentially you know Van Fleet and others argue. You know, use use enough force to actually uh, end it, especially when you finally gotten the Chinese to a point where they're about to crack. Uh, the reason the Chinese eventually agreed to negotiate. Or why they're willing to negotiate it at least for at first is because Mao just simply wants a breather. He needs a two-month breather so he can resume offensive operations in, in August. Why do you query the concept of hybrid warfare? Uh, because it's intellectually unsound you know, to, in many, many ways. You know, I've, I've read as much of the literature on that as I can as I can stand. Uh, it, it, it has a lot of problems. One. Uh, and this is a big problem with a lot of the, a lot of the, some of the new theory, uh, it doesn't understand the difference between war and peace. You know, this is a big distinction because hybrid war and the term gray zone conflict as well, You you, you hear in both in D.C. all the time, if you're telling me everything is in a gray zone, the, war, the, the land between war and peace, or if you're telling me that people are operating in a hybrid way, which essentially, you know, in some respects, some of these people that write about it say the same thing, that there is no difference between war and peace. They're finding a hybrid war, but with the art at war. Well, if there is no difference between war and peace, this creates a real problem when you're trying to address the issue because the way you deal with a military problem when you're at war is much different than the way you would deal with a political problem when you're not at war. Uh, and, and such confusion at this could actually get us into a, a real war depending on how people act. Uh, one of the other problems with Uh, The hybrid concept is essentially, uh, it it also confuses uh, what subversion is, uh, where uh, the hybridists will say, oh, we've got this uh, tactical stuff that's going on with regular and irregular forces, uh, but uh, then there are these cyber issues and some propaganda and so on. Well, first they argue that this is new. Well, this is nothing new. Uh, this mixing of irregular and irregular warfare regular and irregular warfare is nothing new you know, this has been done since uh, brasset has crossed the peninsula uh, across the Peloponnesus uh, uh, but uh, this that's another problem with it as well and they forget the subversion these cyber issues all of this goes on in peace as well as war just because someone is now using this cyber issue, uh, using cyber or some other form of subversion in say the Ukraine, this, this again, this is nothing. This is no, this is nothing really new. So then people, and plus the concentration of the hybrids is mostly on tactical issues, which is fine. There's nothing that's they're very very important to study. But then what happens is they take these tactical issues, a little bit of tactical innovation, with mixed with subversion and criminal activity, and then extrapolate from this a whole new supposed form of warfare. Which then now in the last you know seven or eight years at least has started entering into American uh, national strategy documents and policy documents and actually you know influencing uh, uh, military strategy and doctrine, which I think is is not particularly useful. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Know know what you want, you know, and have the policymakers understand that. Know have them understand what they want. Be very clear in it. Understand how hard it's going to be to get it. Uh, it, it. Going to war is the most serious thing and the most complicated thing uh, that a country can do. Uh, and so you really, really need to think very seriously and think very hard about it and don't expect it to go the way you want it to go. Have an understanding of what you want uh, and think hard about what it's going to cost to get it and if it's worth it or not.
0: I would like to thank you very much, Professor Stoker, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Coutillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you,
2: Professor Stoker. Thank you, sir. I appreciate your time.